0: All right, I'm quitting my job. I'm taking all the money I had in my 401k. I'm going to rent a building. I'm going to buy equipment. I'm going to figure out how to make shutters. And I'm going to start a company that's going to kick ass. She just looked at me and then looked over at my son. She's like, we have a newborn and I just quit my job. What are you thinking? You can't do this. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing it. (laughs) And it's going to work. That was kind of in a very empowering moment, because when you finally make a decision to do something that puts you on a path forward to your goals, it's empowering. It's empowering. that job turned out to be the finding moment for me in my life and what I later understood as kind of my entrepreneurial journey. So one of the things at 51 I can tell you that's critical that if I had it to do all over again so much earlier on is... After two or three days of meetings with this team and myself, he sat me down in a room alone. And he says, Look, you got a problem. He goes, You need to fire all three of these guys because they're trying to take over your business. They're alienating your employees. I have no trust and confidence that they're not playing games with the financials, and you got a problem. My name's Rick Skidmore. I started and run a company called Timber Lane and we manufacture custom window shutters and window shutter hardware. We're located in a suburb of Philadelphia, about an hour outside of the city in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. And how old are you? I am 51. And how long have you been running the business? Since day one. <laughs> so we're in our 24th year.
1: I remember when we were talking earlier, I usually don't see entrepreneurs. It seems like stay with a company this long, but it seems like 24 years strong is a pretty long time, especially given your age.
0: Yeah. If you had told me when I started the business that I would still be in this business in 24 years, I probably wouldn't have believed you. At the time, I think I probably would have categorized myself more as a serial entrepreneur. Not that I knew what that was then, but it just kind of took a life of its own and evolved and grew organically. And here I am 24 years later.
1: How many people work in your company and can you give us an idea of revenues today? Sure. We have
0: about 80 full-time employees. We run about $12 a year in revenue.
1: You said you're a shutter company?
0: Yeah, so that throws some people off. So think old homes, old structures that have these ornamental shutters on the outside that really weren't ornamental originally. They would have been very functional and in many ways served as window protection or even the early windows. Our customers are homeowners that have traditionally inspired homes. We serve lots of institutional markets, think historical landmarks. Any home, any structure that honestly has shutters or would have had shutters would be a customer of ours. It's funny because I
1: actually put some on my house somewhat recently, but they come like plastic ones almost now versus the old ones that you're saying were actually functional. And it's like I screwed them into the actual wall, so it's not like they're functional at all. Like I think everyone just uses them for looks now. But can you explain a little bit more? It's like, do you work with these plastic ones? Are you building like higher end ones? Like just tell us a little bit more about the shutter industry and what you
0: do exactly. No, that's a great question. Because it's often misunderstood. So what you just described, the shutters that you put on your house, that would be like a molded polystyrene or a vinyl shutter. They are purely decorative. They're in many ways to us the enemy. Right. <laughs> so what we do is make very high end, very custom, very dimensional, very detailed shutters. So think of like a kitchen cabinet door or a front entry door with a frame and styles and panels. That's essentially what a shutter is. There's lots of different types of shutters. So we started in wood which still represents about 55, 60% of the materials that we use. But then we evolved into synthetic materials, I guess about 10 years ago, when exterior building products and the raw materials that went into them evolved to a point where the quality was there and the stability was there. We're slow and cautious, but eventually got into synthetic shutters. So now we offer a couple different product lines that are actually not wood, but from a few feet away, you couldn't tell the difference because they basically perform, act, mill, machine, and do everything that wood can do. But they're just, not wood, so it'll never rot. Functionally, what did they used to be used for back in the day? Shutters, they go back a long way, actually. And long before glazing technology with glass is what it is today. We think of windows today that are nice and tight and the wind doesn't come through and they keep us warm in the winter and the house cool in the summer. That wasn't always the case. A lot of times, if you go back about 150 years ago, windows were just single pane glass. They weren't very tight. There wasn't much insulation, if any. So what people used to do is have shutters on the outside and they would actually close them at night. So it would actually provide another level of kind of insulation and also protection. Shutters can also secure first floor, so they're more solid than glass. They're a little harder to break than glass. Shutters essentially were, in many ways, the early windows. As time went on and technology started to slowly evolve, windows became more meaningful and built with higher degrees of quality shutters started to fade because people didn't need them as much anymore. Today, shutters are very much an ornamental component to a home. It's kind of like putting on earrings. It's like jewelry for the home. As shutters became less necessary functionally, they kind of started to die. They kind of started to fade away. And that was probably by the 40s or 50s. What once was meaningful industry, which was the shutter industry, it all died and got replaced by windows. So did it start making a comeback at some point? different periods in time were different architectural movements. So traditionalism started to become more meaningful and bounce back on the scene in the early 90s. So things like shutters really aren't needed anymore. People were really trying to preserve a home or restore it back to its original splendor. And a lot of the accoutrements that went on a home that existed 50, 60, 100 years ago, which were long torn off and replaced, did a little bit of a comeback. And the architectural community certainly drove a lot of that. And then discerning homeowners who really just maybe didn't necessarily want to adopt full-on modernism and contemporary styles and they wanted to preserve the neoclassical look. So slowly then the demand for shutters, I think, started to slowly come back in the early 90s or so. And my own entry into this business was on the heels of that in many ways. I had an old home in a fairly rich historical community, kind of a small town, a suburb of Philadelphia. And I was restoring the home myself and I was kind of a hobbyist woodworker and I had a small construction business through college. So I was doing a lot of this work myself myself and my old home had shutters that were falling apart and rotted and a lot of the windows were gone. So there was evidence that shutters were there, but the shutters themselves were missing. So as I was nearing the completion of the heavy lifting of the renovation, I started to focus on the details and shutters were one of those details that I had fully intended when I started the project to replace. And as a woodworker, I was going to make them myself. When it came time, I wanted to figure out how to do it because I didn't know anything about shutters. I knew enough about woodworking to know how to make a pretty rudimentary shutter, but I needed did some design direction. So I kind of set out doing some research and trying to find companies that made the type of shutters that I had envisioned to put back on my home. And now this was 1994, 1995. So this was the infancy of the internet. Google wasn't as it is today. So research then consisted more offline methods. I was going to stores. I was going to lumberyards. I was anywhere that would have sold that type of product. So I quickly realized that nobody sold shutters anymore, or at least the type of shutters that I wanted. There was no shortage of vinyl shutters and over time we nicknamed those lick and stick shutters almost as a joke because it's almost like they're just plopped onto the home. I was kind of honestly frustrated at this point because I was trying to just get somebody's catalog to sit down with a ruler, try to scale it and get some dimensions so I could embark on making my shutters. Through that process, I realized, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, I'm going to make shutters myself just because I can and because it's a hobby of mine. But most people aren't going to make them. They're going to buy them. And What if I was in that category and I owned this home and I wanted to replace the shutters, but I couldn't find them anywhere? So that was kind of like the light bulb moment for me. And at the time, I was working in corporate America and very itchy to get into an entrepreneurial situation of some sort. So that was my light bulb moment where I said, hey, I don't know anything about industrial woodworking. I know enough about woodworking to be dangerous, but I did understand how to build a brand. I did understand the fundamentals of marketing, and I certainly was an entrepreneur, so I figured I'm going to give this a go. So that's a long answer to your question about how Shutter's evolved over time, and I'm sure you'll want to dig into that a little further, but that's basically my entry into this business.
1: I oh, know. That's perfect. I mean, I you took like three of my questions and answered <laughs> them all in one because I was going to make that transition of kind of how you got started. So it sounds like we know how you got started because it was like a need that you found. But I guess even before that, you said you kind of had some some entrepreneurial bug, and maybe you're interested in business and felt like you could market a business. Can you tell us like where that came from? Were you reading about businesses and always dreamed of starting your own? Because you said you were in corporate America and then made the transition to making Timberlane. I guess you're
0: about 28, 29, somewhere in that age range. Yeah, I guess I'll go back a few steps leading up to that. I was always kind of an entrepreneurial kid. I was always a high energy kid, always scrappy and always looking for different things to do. When I was probably nine or 10 years old, I would walk around and pick wildflowers and in many cases, ragweed. And I would make flower bunches and I would wrap foil around them and I'd grab a card table from my living room and go out on the street corner and I'd sell flowers. I did that and I would rake leaves in the fall. I would cut lawns. I would clean attics. Anything I could do to earn a buck, I would do it. Even at one point, My mom would make these things called funnel cakes, which were just kind of like fried dough with powdered sugar on it. And so I said, mom, make me like three of them. And I'm going to go out on the corner and see if I can sell them. And then I did that and I sold standing out in the corner, waving at cars coming by and they would stop because I was a kid and I'm sure it was kind of a sympathy purchase, but it worked. I probably sold 50 funnel cakes and my poor mom was back in the house all of a sudden in a production kitchen. So I was always entrepreneurial. I was always itchy to glaze my own trail. When I was 12... I guess I was getting tired of cutting lawns and raking leaves and doing odd jobs and declared to my parents, I said, I want to go get a real job. And they're like, well, you're 12. No one's going to hire you. And I said, no, somebody's going to hire me. I grew up in a section of Philadelphia, neighborhood of Philadelphia, where there was a kind of like a long commercial strip that was, I don't know, eight or nine blocks long. And there was hundreds of stores and it was like a shopping district, if you will. I remember going out one day and I started on one side of the street and I went in every single store, whether it was a little hardware store or whether it was a bakery or shoe store, produce store, didn't matter. And I would walk in and I would say, hey, are you guys hiring? I'm looking for a job and they were not hiring. And if we were, you're too young. And I would just go to the next store. And I probably did that to no kidding, 75, maybe more stores and getting a little frustrated after five or six hours of this and quickly realized I may have to lie about my age (laughs) because nobody's going to hire me when I was 12, but I probably looked like I was 10. And nearing the end of that exercise, there was a really small little pet shop. And I remember going, oh, I like pets. I love animals. Let me walk in there. And I walked in and there was this old lady behind the cash register. And this was like a turn of the century, very old school pet shop. And I said, hey, are you hiring? She goes, well, actually I am. And I say, that's awesome. And she goes, well, how old are you? And I was like, eh. I figured I don't want to lie, but yeah. You know. So I'm like, now nah, I'm 12. And she was quiet and shook her head from side to side. And she goes, okay. She goes, when can you work? And I said, I work after school. I can work on weekends, any school holidays, the summer, you name it. I can work. She goes, well, I'll give you a shot. I'll pay you $2 an hour and you can work a couple days after school. And if that works out, you can work on Saturdays. So that's what I did. I got my first job, man. I went home. I was psyched. I remember storming in the front door and telling my parents, I'm like, I got a job. $2 an hour seemed like a fortune to me then. And that job turned out to be the finding moment for me in my life. And what I later understood is kind of my entrepreneurial journey. This is like an old lady that had this store, honestly, like 50 years. She was in her late 60s at the time. And she was the quintessential entrepreneur, quintessential storekeeper learned, never made any money, literally lived in a one bedroom apartment above the store, worked 24 hours a day. Oftentimes she didn't have enough money to even pay me. And she had this little notebook next to the cash register. And she says, look, I'm sorry, I can't pay you, but it just keep track of your hours. And whenever I can afford to pay, you, I'll pay you. And I didn't care. And she always made good on her promises. So she had high integrity. I just learned so much about that. I learned how to treat customers. I watched her. And when a customer would come in, no matter what they would need, she would get it done. And if she didn't have what they needed, she would either send me to find it or she would go buy it. So she just really was such a phenomenal role model very early on when I was at such an impressionable age and didn't even know that I was just absorbing all of this and learning. I think back on those days very fondly. I worked there from the time I was 12 to the time I was 16. And for those four years, I worked almost every day after school. I worked weekends. I would go in on holidays because the animals needed to be fed. So Christmas morning, I'd get up and I'd go in there and clean the animal cages and put water and feed. And it was kind of like lightning in a bottle. That was a great time.
1: You were there for about four years and then do we want to fast forward to you going to college and kind of going into
0: from there, I realized I wanted the real job and I ended up getting a job in Sears. And that was the next big step. I and mean, I was just running a cash register for three thirty-five an hour until I overheard that some of the departments in the store, they paid commission. I'm like, well, what's commission? They're like, well, commission is when you get a percentage of the value of the sale. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome. I'm like, well, how do I get that? And they're like, kid, we don't give that to part-timers, much less kids. But I was tenacious and I eventually got a shot to work in an appliance department where they sold washers and dryers and refrigerators. Doesn't sound very glamorous, but I quickly realized, the folks in this department were making a lot of money. And I eventually started selling washers and dryers and earning commission. And I was making $35, forty $40,000 a year in high school. And nobody knew this, of course, but I remember my parents like, wow. And that gave me the taste of sales and that gave me the taste of commission and all of that. So from there, I headed off to college, thought I wanted to be a lawyer, although I had no idea what a lawyer really was. Everybody just told me as a kid, you never shut up. You can sell anything to anybody. You should really be a lawyer. And I'm like, all right, I'll be a lawyer. I quickly learned that you need good grades and that was really never my thing. School was always kind of a nuisance to me, and it stood in the way of all my other pursuits. So my grades were horrible, and probably by the junior year of college, I realized that I probably had a less than a 2.0 grade point average at a mediocre college. I wasn't really probably going to get in any good law school. So I kind of finished out my college career and with a criminal justice and a psychology degree, and I'm like, well, now what? I wasn't really suited to do much else but sell, and so that almost pigeonholed me into a sales path. So I ended up getting a job for MetLife Insurance Company, which is one of the largest insurance companies. And I got plugged into entry-level sales path. And it was, hell, it was selling insurance, which was barely one step above selling used cars. So I had to really swallow my pride with that. So I did that. And I just had a really, really bumpy first year. Couldn't really find my sea legs. And it was kind of a sleazy industry. And I was trying to do it the right way. And with my manager in the office I was working out of at the time, ended up getting fired. And they put in a new guy. And remember, this new guy called everybody in. And I thought for sure. I was going to get fired because he fired a bunch of other people and said, tell me about yourself, kid. Just had a quick conversation. I realized this guy seemed to give a shit. He seemed to want to see me succeed. And he said, look, give me three months. I want you to bust your ass for three months. Do what I say, take risks. I want you to work hard and I'll teach you how to be successful. So I did that. He turned out to be Probably my second real meaningful mentor and ended up spending another four or five years there. I quickly went from the lowest sales rep to the top sales rep. And then they promoted me and they turned me into a manager, which is what they do to every good salesperson, which is usually to kiss a death. Because just because you're a good salesperson doesn't mean you're a good manager. But it turns out I ended up being a decent manager too. And I got to learn leadership because this guy believed in me and he helped me put some structure around my goals. I remember in one conversation with him, he said, So what do you want? I said, I want to be a millionaire. I want to earn a million bucks. And he goes, well, let's put a plan together to make that happen. And he goes, I want you to take out a blank check. And I want you to write out a check to yourself for a million bucks. And I want you to fold it up. And I want you to put it in your wallet, carry it around. And every time you feel defeated or every time you need to be inspired or whatever that is, I want you to take it out. And I want you to look at that and let that be your true north. And I did that. And I carried that folded up check in my wallet for years <laughs> and did just what he said. And turns out that it worked that was my first real corporate job. And I spent about six-ish years on that path. I did very well. I made a bunch of money. They kept promoting me, giving me bigger responsibilities, kind of feeding my ego, which is what that industry did at the time. But I was still wanting more as well as I was doing. I was just itching to be on my own, which was my destiny. And I didn't really know and understand it then, but I just really wanted to blaze my own trail. I certainly didn't want to work for a large company because I very quickly realized you're just a cog in a wheel and it's impossible to get anything done.
1: Can I say, there yeah real quick is that yeah there's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently and intelligently about a subject and that's why i love the great courses plus with this streaming service i have the freedom to learn more about virtually any topic and not just get the basics but truly master it learning unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like the psychology of performance, nonverbal communication, even mindfulness or Mediterranean cooking. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere. I'm learning a lot from the course The Entrepreneur's Toolkit. See, it provides great detailed tips and tools for anyone looking to start, nurture, expand, and sell a business. It even shows how the same valuable skills can translate to other aspects of your life. So to get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge, sign up for The Great Courses Plus. For a limited time only, they're offering our listeners an entire month for free. But to start your free month trial, you must sign up today using our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash millionaire. So again, to learn from this awesome course, the Entrepreneur's Toolkit, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash millionaire. I think that's a very good tactical thing that you said that maybe at the time, did you think it was kind of goofy to write yourself a million dollar check? But I mean, I could see myself doing that after this interview as far as just like motivation when you need it, because all of us go through those
0: highs and lows. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many hacks and little silly things like that I've done and still do to this day. I mean, I think we have to trick ourselves, especially in the entrepreneurial pursuits that we go after, they're nothing certain. In many ways, you're blazing a trail that's never been blazed before, and you're the only one that's going to actually see the vision. So you have to trick yourself into faking it till you make it, create a vision and get a visual in your head of what success looks like. It kind of uses fuel and momentum to allow you to do what needs to be done.
1: At least you learned that while you're there. And it sounded like you were saying you made a decent amount of money while you are there. Were you single or married at this point in time?
0: I was single when I started. I had gotten married midway through my tenure at MetLife. And I was young. I was in my mid-20s. Life was good. I was very fortunate was making good money and I wasn't burning it. I wasn't living this ridiculous lifestyle. I mean, I bought a home and my wife at the time also had a job and we decided to start a family and had our first child. And probably within a few months of our first child being born is when I really made this decision that I was gonna go out on my own, but I really didn't know what. So I kept working and moonlighting at night not working somewhere else, but just putting in all this time and thinking around what I could do next. And this was around the time when I was restoring my home and this whole accident of bumping into this shutter opportunity came up. So that was my idea. And I decided, you know what, I'm frustrated in my job. I know I want to be on my own. I made enough money that I could fund a little startup here and I didn't have to take a paycheck right away. And that was it. I decided I'm going to do it. I remember coming home one day and telling my wife at the time, hey, and I was psyched, man. I was like, all right, I'm quitting my job. I'm taking all the money I had in my 401k. I'm going to rent a building. I'm going to buy equipment. I'm going to figure out how to make shutters, and I'm going to start a company that's going to kick ass. She just looked at me. And then looked over at my son. She's like, we have a newborn and I just quit my job. What are you thinking? You can't do this. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing it. (laughs) And it's going to work. That was kind of in a very empowering moment because when you finally make a decision to do something that puts you on a path forward to your goals, it's empowering. At the time, I guess, considering
1: like health insurance
0: and stuff like that, especially if she had quit,
1: not having any of that. I mean, how much money did you have saved up to put towards the company? Because I imagine you had to start putting money to the side if your wife had, no longer has a job and you have a newborn.
0: Yeah. So I think it's a long time ago. Probably about $100,000 is what I had saved. If I recall correctly, I went on COBRA after I quit my job. And that allowed me to continue health benefits, I think, for like three or six months. And then I think within the first three or six months, I just bought a medical plan to cover that for us. By life insurance form? Yeah, I had some life insurance too, for sure. Exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Tell us about the early days of starting off then. Yeah. I appreciate you setting the table. You've done it perfectly so far. So why don't we wrap into making that transition from having that? Pretty solid paying job where a lot of people would be scared to leave. They don't have the confidence, but obviously you did. Just tell us about this transition, what you had to do to get the company started in 1995. Because again, that's early years of internet not really going on. So I could see how much easier it seems like it is to make business today and hire people versus back then when you didn't really have the internet at your fingertips.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a different environment having that benefit of hindsight now looking back. The first thing I needed to do was rent a building because I had this one car garage and I knew I wasn't going to start the business in the garage. So I think it's important to understand, Like, I had no interest in being a one-man show. So from the very beginning, before I wrote a check and made one decision, the decision I made in my head was, I'm going big. I want to build a real company with a real team eventually and a real building and a real brand. And I knew that in order to do that, one of the things I learned going back to my mentor at MetLife was sometimes the best motivation is to put yourself in a situation where you have to achieve or have to win. So I figured if I go out and rent a building and get a lease and start incurring some expenses, I won't have a choice but to make this work because I have to pay for all this stuff. So I rented a small warehouse in the back of a bigger warehouse. And I remember starting to just learn everything. I didn't know one manufacturing company that made equipment. And I knew enough about woodworking at a hobbyist level, but certainly not at an industrial woodworking level and a factory level. So I had to understand that, had to understand how to build the initial branding elements and how to get phones and just all that stuff. So I rented the building, bought some equipment, started designing some basic products. I was working literally seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I'd run home at dinner time to see my one-year-old at that point son and eat dinner for a few hours. And I'd run back and I'd work till three in the morning. I'd come home and sleep for a few hours. And I was right back at it again at six in the morning. So it was an immersive process. And at the time, there was a Federal Express commercial on TV. And it, it kind of summed up what that looked like. And it was basically profiling a small business owner. And I think they called it Bob, right? So there's Bob in sales and then you'd see Bob on the phone taking orders and then it would flash and then you'd say, hey, here's Bob in shipping and it's the same guy with a different hat and he's in shipping, right? And Hey, here's Bob in our R&D department and it's the same guy and they were basically trying to paint the picture that entrepreneurs and small businesses, you often wear many hats and you do many things. Well, that was me. I was working in the plant, designing products, putting equipment in, learning how to figure this whole stuff out and then at night I was returning phone calls, talking to customers, trying to understand the bookkeeping and all that stuff, and. It probably took about three months of setup and I took out an ad in a magazine and I remember getting those first phone calls where people said, hey, I'm interested and I would jump in the car and I would go out and meet with them and I'd measure their windows and having never done this before, I had to fake it. And of course, I had to act like you've never been in an end zone before, act like you've been there. So I had to do that and I got my first order and it was like this, holy shit, I got this order and I basked in it for about nine seconds and I said, holy shit, now I have to figure out how to actually make this thing. And I remember telling the customer, what's your lead time? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, we got a pretty decent backlog. So it's probably going to take two or three weeks, right? (laughs) And there was no backlog. It was that order. But I realized I didn't even have enough materials yet to make this order. Did that, got the first order, which turned into a second order, which turned into a third order, and one ad turned into three ads. And I think within six months, I hired my first real employee, and we were out of the starting gates.
1: Well, why don't we go back to that first order? Like, I guess you're measuring the actual windows and then tell us the process of what you had to do. Because again, this is step one in starting a business because you had never done this before. So just tell us like how you ended up making them and a little bit more detail about this first order.
0: Custom shutters are all built to order. They're built around specific window sizes and around specific styles and specific colors. So it's not like just for your listeners, Even for your own understanding, it's not like we're making a shutter, we're putting it in the box and we're putting it on a shelf waiting for somebody to buy it and we take it and send it to them. So no, like even to this day, our customers, it's a very consultative process. Our customers, we have to communicate with them. We have to understand what they want. They have to say, hey, I'm trying to match this shutter that was here for 50 years that's rotted and I want the trim to look exactly like this piece of trim on this. So the process is first narrow down what type of shutter style the customer wants. So when I went out on that first opportunity, it was really just talking to the customer As it turns out, this was an old farmhouse and it was missing shutters in their barn. There were some old shutters, like a few left that were there for years. And they said, we want to match this. And I said, great. So give me this and we'll take it back to the plant and we'll figure out how to match this. And then that was the first step. And then the second step is I went around to every single window on the home and I took a series of dimensions to really just understand how wide they were, how tall they were and where the surface area that the mounting hardware would go. Then I took all that and I went back, sat at my desk and tried to figure it all out. Some of it was somewhat intuitive to me. And at this point, I spent enough time understanding the basic elements. So I kind of understood it enough to get started. And that was the process. And then I put together a quote and I believe I used QuickBooks. They had like a quoting function in there. And I created SKU numbers and made it seem like we were a real company. And I put this quote down and I put the prices in it. And I remember faxing it, dating myself a bit. And I faxed it to the client and that was it. And then it was kind of like sitting back waiting. And I think like I came into work the next morning and sitting on the fax machine was this curled up piece of paper <laughs> and I was pick it up and at the time I was buying wood so a lot of vendors were sending price lists I didn't really know what it was but I picked it up I flipped it over and it was like an image of my quote with a signature and a credit card number written I was like I'll be damned I just got my first order <laughs>
1: So what did you do with that first order afterwards? Like I could understand that you have some woodworking background, you're saying, so you could understand how to make it, but did you have to like use the machines you bought to make it? What did you do from
0: there? Because you were still the only guy in the company, right? Actually, I wasn't. I skipped that part, actually. So my dad had recently taken an early retirement from his job, and he was a pattern maker, which is essentially a highly technical woodworker. So when I was starting my business, I said, hey, dad, I know you have no interest in getting a business here, but you recently retired. You're not doing anything, and you know a whole lot more about this stuff than I do. I know you don't understand shutters and cabinetry, but you certainly understand industrial woodworking. I said, would you come help me and help me figure all this stuff out? And he did. So my dad was very instrumental at helping me understand the craftsmanship of woodworking and we took that and we sat down with a pad of paper and a calculator and we started making cut lists and grabbed some wood off the shelf and started putting it through the machine and i cut a bunch of stuff wrong made a bunch of mistakes i'm fairly certain i didn't make any money on that first order but we started to figure it out and in the world of industrial woodworking there's always a range of ways to do the same thing that have a lot to do with volume so for instance when you have to clamp wood together, you can do it with simple clamps that you can buy at the hardware store for 10 bucks, but it's going to take a long time and you're not going to be able to do very many. And then there's bigger clamps and then there's machines that are automatic and provide clamping pressure. So in the beginning, we had very rudimentary equipment, very low volume equipment. It served a purpose to get us started and to get us from nothing to something. But those first couple of years, it was somewhat of a constant process evolving all of our equipment into more industrial machinery. That could handle higher volume levels. So, without order, though, we just did it in a scrappy way and got it done. And so, how long did it take for you to become profitable? So, we were actually profitable almost from the beginning, but I didn't actually start drawing a salary from the business for a few years. The business was actually making money, but I was reinvesting the profits into all that equipment I was just talking about or running more ads or creating catalogs or whatever other expenses were present in the business that needed to be funded. So I remember actually at the end of my first year and the accountant did my taxes and I learned a very valuable lesson. I remember I had a tax liability and I think we sold $180,000 in the first year in sales. I remember that. So he says, oh, well, you have like a, I don't know what it was, like a $31,000 tax liability, whatever the number was. It was somewhat meaningful at the time. And I said, well, that's impossible. I didn't take any money out. He goes, well, no, no, no. You did make money, but you chose to reinvest it in the business. So you actually have to pay taxes on that profit. And I said, well, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. He goes, oh, well, that's what they call retained earnings. And you're just choosing to spend your retained earnings on things. I was like, that's ridiculous. So anyhow, that was kind of the start of understanding tax law and understanding the cash side of the business and how all that tied in.
1: Yeah, I think everyone has that epiphany, right? When you get the first paycheck, maybe your first real paycheck or you're starting a business and you find out about taxes, it's like that's a whole nother complexity that you've never thought this would be an issue. But there you are trying to figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. Also at the time, did your wife go back to work or no?
0: No, she did not go back to work.
1: Okay, so I guess you were just taking enough to live by... I guess I don't know if you had other money saved up from your old company or whatever, because I know you said you weren't taking out money, but I find that that's an issue that some people have when they're starting a company is how much money should I be drawing? Because I don't want to draw really any money if I want to keep building the company and reinvesting it like you were thinking. Like, How do I kind of
0: figure that out? So how did you do that? Like I mentioned in the very beginning, I didn't have a super expensive lifestyle. So I think a couple thousand bucks a month was enough to cover our mortgage and our basic bills at a very modest house. And that was enough to kind of get us through. And I recognize now in hindsight, to your point, I was very lucky that I was in a position to be able to do that. A lot of people are not. In hindsight, I probably would have started to draw a salary sooner. Now, again, I was lucky enough that there was enough profitability that and it's relative, by the way. On $180,000 of revenue, there's I don't know, maybe $30 or $40,000 in profits. So it's not like this windfall, but I probably would have started to draw a salary sooner because if you start putting that burden on the business, because it's not really realistic to not take a pay, even if you're choosing to put it back in, because the reality of it is, whether it's me running the business or it's somebody I hire to run the business, they're going to have to be paid. So I probably would have started to draw a salary a little sooner. Thank you for telling
1: us that. I mean, was there anything else over the first couple of years that you probably would have done differently now that you're looking back?
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't even begin to. It's, I'm sure it's a long list. I would say, especially the first couple of years, it was just hallmarked by failures and just learning and whether it's buying the wrong equipment or whether it's partnering with the wrong vendor, or whether it was not taking a deposit on an order and having the customer not pay. So yeah, it's a lot of different things.
1: Those sound like three big things. I mean, if you want to hit on any of them or deposit on the order, actually sounds like it might hurt the most, huh? Yeah,
0: I built the business almost from the beginning to be a direct-to-consumer model. So we sell direct-to-end users. We don't sell through stores or distribution or resellers. And... The benefit of that, coupled with the fact that our product is custom, is we could ask for a deposit and say, look, we're not going to take this order unless you give us a deposit because we're going to actually have to manufacture it. And if you choose not to take it or not kind of fulfill the order, then it's useless to us because we build it specifically for you around your dimensions. We always take a 50% deposit and we always get the balance paid before we ship it. In the early days, I was just serving my local community and local markets. So I could see people face to face and because we could, I would just deliver it in our own truck and it was easy, but we very quickly started to branch out and start selling nationally and creating almost a mail order model. So we needed to put systems in place to protect ourselves. So I learned very quickly after those first couple misses that, no, 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 we're going to get a deposit up front where we're not going to start the order and we're going to get paid before we ship it to you. Because once we ship it, we have no leverage. If you get it and decide that you change your mind, you have our product. And in many cases, you're halfway across the country. So we have no recourse. So those things are important. You have to put the controls in place to protect your interest for sure. Over the past 70 years, there's been a dramatic shift towards single-use plastics in our society. In the beginning, it was an incredibly promising technology that opened possibilities beyond our imagination. Then, it became trash. We now produce 300 million tons of plastic every year. We have developed a disposable lifestyle. We now face the incredible damage we have inflicted on our environment. One reason for hope is the extraordinary nature of human intellectual accomplishment, creative ways of recycling and reusing reduces demand for production of new plastics. At AllMade, we're committed to only using recycled polyester in our triblends. On average, each shirt prevents six plastic bottles from ending up in landfills or the ocean. AllMade is dedicated to finding new and innovative ways to reduce our demand.
1: Will you? If you're looking for more information about AllMade be sure to tune in to episode 131, where I interview the founder, Ryan Moore. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So... To help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. Yeah, I think anyone listening now will appreciate that. At first, you just want any order, so you're not worried about that. But after you got screwed a couple of times, you got to think about risk mitigation. And you're able to do that by having the deposit. And then, again, like you're saying, the second thing, before you ship it, then I guess you get the rest of the money. What helped you actually grow from that kind of local business to a national business over those early years? Yeah, so... Sounds like a lot of hard work. Sounds like you're exhausted just thinking about it.
0: No, no. It's more pausing because it's <sighs> kind of like I could go down so many different pathways to answer it. Right. So, kind of bookmarking that for a second, the thing I quickly realized literally within that first year is I'm going to go nowhere fast if I can't attract, hire, and retain smart people to help me get there. Because I was very scrappy and I was more of a generalist. I knew a little bit about a lot, but I didn't know a lot about any one thing. So, that started the path of building a team and learning things like it's kind of important to share what your vision is with the people that you're going to interview and ultimately hire. Otherwise, how are they going to help you fulfill that dream? So building the team was a pretty important part of learning how to scale the business. And The first problem I had to solve was I had to get myself out of the shop so I could spend more time working on the business and not in the business. Slowly, one employee at a time. I would hire people that seemed to have the core values that were important to me. So, you know, were they hardworking? You know, were they dependable? Were they honest? Were they gonna show up to work? Were they gonna work hard? Were they positive people? And would just use that as a set of filters for when I was looking to bring people on board. So I started to build a team. I started to do a better job of articulating what The vision was and I was very clear. I said, look, we're in a small building, but we're not going to be here long. And yeah, there's only two people, but it's eventually going to be 10 and 20 and 30. And we're making ten windows of shutters today, but pretty soon we're going to be making fifty. So we have to think about how we're going to do that and how we're going to scale this business. It absolutely was not Rick in a vacuum figuring out all of these things. It was surrounding myself with a bunch of smart people and having them help me understand what our next steps were and what we needed to do.
1: Also, was there anything that significant that led to you kind of growing over those last couple of years? Because again, this is a 24-year-old company. We're still, I guess, here in the first couple of years. I mean, I don't know if we want to jump to certain points of growth points or downturn points that you think would be most helpful to everyone listening.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Otherwise, this could be a long conversation. (laughs) To put it in context, we doubled revenue every year for like six years in a row we grew fast. That impresses people when you hear it, but it's also important to understand it's not so hard to double when you're starting at zero. So zero to something is easy. Going from zero to 180,000 in sales, it's an accomplishment for sure, but it's not the same as going from 5 million to 10 million. We doubled fast. I would say the first real inflection point in the business, and I have since become a disciple and a lifelong learner around all the idiosyncrasies that go on in in growth companies. And there's a ton of research written about these ledges, these cliffs, where companies can get from one point to one point and then have to fundamentally shift how they think about the business and how they operate the business. It's kind of that adage of what got you here won't get you there. It was this constant relearning of practices and behaviors and evolving, like the first and Inflection point for us was we were probably at 3 million a year in revenue a couple years in. And we needed to put real infrastructure, real systems in place, which would allow us to scale, right? We can't do stuff on pads and paper anymore. We needed actual software to do it for us. And then the other tough lesson was a lot of the people that were very comfortable and could add value in a $1 million size business can't always make the shift and how they need to think and act when it's three million or five million or ten million. So one of the hardest things, and it's still hard, is when the business grows and the businesses needs outgrow the individual. And a lot of times the individual just really isn't interested in growing and evolving at that same level. So you have to change them out. And that's a tough thing. So the first inflection point for us was like the three to four million dollar range where we had to put real infrastructure in. And we did that. That actually propelled some growth because we became more efficient internally. So we could actually spend less time working on, I'll call it fundamental like infrastructure functions of the business. And we could spend more time actually growing market, running more ads developing better partnerships, getting involved in different trade shows or influencers or folks that could help drive the brand.
1: It was it hard making that transition? Because
0: were you doing certain
1: parts of like, would you pick a group of the business that you're like, hey, I want to upgrade this part and then move to another part? Because again, I could see you're ready to put in systems, but it, I guess it's also difficult to do it all at once. So I don't know the best way to go about it if I was building a product or anyone else who's listening, who's building a product and making that transition.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a tough thing to balance. Right. In my world, at least, there's almost two businesses that cohabitate together. So I have kind of a direct marketing business, which is all of the top of, funnel, it's the advertising, it's the process of selling and servicing the customer. And then I've got this manufacturing, this industrial manufacturing business with a plant and equipment and compliance and raw materials. And each one, very different from one another, but each one has a set of demands and resource needs. So in my world, at least in the manufacturing side, there was always like a deficiency with a machine and there was this big capital investment that needed to be made. It could be two or $300,000 for a new machine. And that was always a really big risk and it was always a scary thing. We would make that investment in a machine and now we're like, holy shit, now we better increase sales to keep that machine fed. So I would swing over to the sales side. Well let's hire more salespeople. Let's take out more ads. And then it was kind of like this step block thing. We'd make investments on the sales and marketing side and then we'd start selling, we'd start to outsell our capacities and then we would need to go buy a new or a bigger machine or another machine or another person. So the hard balance is growing both sides of the business somewhat in parallel path. And I'm not sure that's always possible. Sometimes you have to take a big bet. Whether it's a piece of equipment, a piece of software, a key hire, a person, a bigger building, it could take on lots of different forms. But I don't know that any of us kind of run businesses in a perfect world. And most people I know don't have unlimited resources. So it's pretty impossible to solve all your problems at once.
1: The other part is you're servicing your current customers at the same point in time, so it's not like you can just put that on pause. I guess if you could put your company on pause for a month, implement the new systems all at once, and do it, that'd be ideal. But I don't think anyone can really do that.
0: Now, one of the sayings, and it's not mine, but I kind of ripped it off, and I've been using it for years. It's a lot of times, especially a startup and a growth business, it's like you're flying the airplane as you're building it, and like taking that same analogy, it's you're 30,000 feet. It's analogous to actually having to learn how to change an engine out in mid-flight mm-hmm. because the plane can't lose altitude. You got to keep moving. So to your point, it's just not an option to just go, hey, let's just slow down. Let's stop selling and let's take a few months and we'll get our shit together. We'll buy a bigger machine. You can't do that. Right. That's not
1: how it works. It sounds like you made these transitions successful. At what point do we want to jump to as far as like inflection points again? Because it sounds like we got to up to the year 2000-ish or so. And how old are you at this
0: point in time? I'm early 30s. Okay.
1: Yeah. So it seems like everything's going well for your early 30s. Happy like five years into your own business. Everything's going well?
0: Everything's going well. I would say the first significant challenge that I had was we were probably in the Five and a half, $6 million revenue range. We probably had 35 or 40 employees. I had a newer leadership team of three individuals that were somewhat homegrown. So I had a head of sales that started as a sales rep that became a good friend and he kind of became the natural person to head sales. I had literally my first manufacturing employee who became my production manager and eventually was running my plant and had a newer finance person that we had hired. And I spent a lot of effort trying to build this team and that was by design. And the plan was, hey, you guys are going to run the day-to-day of the business and I'm going to go off and figure out how to grow this thing, open up new markets. And kind of by design, I needed to spend a little less time in the office and more time out of the office on the road or just kind of working, that proverbial saying, working on the business and not in the business. And what happened, which I never saw coming, was these three individuals, their egos got the best of them. And it was almost a coup in many ways. They started to block me. They started to not sharing information with me and kind of almost acting like it was their company. And they were non-equity owners and they were really just employees. And that was a very painful time because there was a lot of betrayal going on. I felt that this is crazy. Like I gave these guys opportunities. I put this really lucrative bonus plan in place for them. And now they're not respecting my role in this. And it's not like I was going off starting new businesses and just turning a back to this one. I was very much working on this business. And then that just got really toxic after a while they started to make a series of very bad decisions and started alienating employees against me and I don't know about 4 or 5 months into this exercise I realized this is not working and I got to like come back in but I wanted to do it in a thoughtful way and so I hired a consultant to help navigate this dysfunctional relationship and I remember the consultant after 2 or 3 days of meetings with this team and myself, he sat me down in a room alone. He says, look, you got a problem. He goes, you need to fire all three of these guys because they're trying to take over your business. They're alienating your employees. I have no trust and confidence that they're not playing games with the financials and you got a problem. And I'm like, holy shit, how do I just fire the three people running the business? So that was a tough time. And I actually did. I actually had to fire all three of them. That was a scary time because in doing that, I had to jump back in. And now I had to wear the hats of three individuals that were running the business. That was a scary time. And they'd done a lot of damage to a lot of employees because they did reckless things hey, do you know how much money your boss is making? God. And I'm like, wow, guys, you don't <laughs> do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was a big lesson that I had to learn. And it took me probably a year and a half to stabilize the business. I had to purge some additional employees that just drank the Kool-Aid and weren't able to swing back to a positive and productive place. Yeah. What year was that? That was 2004, 2005.
1: Yeah. And that kind of sucks. That's probably about the boom of your industry as far as homes, right? I don't know if new home building, if that helps at all, or if that had any effect on your business.
0: Almost. So it's about a year or two premature, and I'll quickly get to that now. So that happened. I hired some replacements and was putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, if you will. And we were outgrown in our facility at the time. So I made a big bet. I bought a large industrial building that was four times the size of the building we were in. And between that and some equipment purchases, I went and borrowed five million bucks. And it was a pretty big bet. Revenue was growing at this point, and we were in the eight or nine million dollar range. And things were going well. This is 2006. 2007 and then we had about 11 12 million dollar revenue rate we had 120 employees at this point we get to about the first quarter of 2008 and all of a sudden all of our leading indicators it's like the computer with the gauges that started to go wonky and the dials are spinning like out of control. So those dials were our leading indicators on new leads and sales forecasts. And everything was just creating this very dismal picture. And the world at the time around us, this was the very early stages of the financial downturn and the housing industry collapse. And we were right in there with it. Just bought a building, went deep into debt, 120 people. Our revenue went from 12 million to 5 million. Headcount went from 120 to 30 people in nine months. I was scared. I thought this business that I had put my heart and soul into, not to mention a whole ton of money and capital and risk, it was scary. So we hit rock bottom in about 2010. And now, granted, the world around us was not in a great way at this point. And then it was just very slow, very methodical slog to rebuild the business and climb our way out of that hole that we fell into. I imagine
1: your confidence, that has to be pretty shaken too. I mean, it seems like to be able to get out of the three people who are turning on you and your business and kind of rebuild everything and everything had gone up because it doesn't sound like you had anything. I mean, that was obviously significant to have three people kind of turn your back on you and do all that, but then you're able to grow it. It's like you're in your upper 30s or maybe about to be 40 and you were able to survive that. And then that happens. I mean, just tell us a little bit more about like that. Because in nine months to be able to have to lay all that, Others people often do all that. It seems like this might be the hardest downturn that you had to deal with like personally as well.
0: Yeah, so the first horrible situation was that three managers and the second for sure was surviving this downturn. And I paid a lot of prices. I mean, my marriage fell apart. I ended up getting divorced. My health started to decline because I was working 24 hours a day. So I was eating horribly and not working out and all that stuff. So yeah, and then you mentioned confidence. It's pretty hard when you're the guy and things are crumbling around you not to look inward and go, well, damn, what am I doing wrong here? if it weren't for my mentors and my peer groups that I was involved in and still am involved in, I'm not so sure. I probably would have survived, but it would have been bloody. It was still bloody. So one of the things at 51, I can tell you that's critical that if I had it to do it all over again, I would have leaned into so much earlier on is you need to build a tribe. You need to build a tribe of mentors and coaches and peers and other people that you can lean on, not just for tactical skills, but for experience sharing and folks that have either been where you, are and have figured out a way to navigate through it. And it's not so much about someone giving you advice. It's more about hearing people's experiences and then you drawing conclusions based on that and how it applies to you and your situation.
1: And that's a perfect segment, if you don't mind me saying something.
0: Yeah. That's actually why
1: I just started recently saying that I'm putting together mastermind groups for people who are listening to the podcast, because it's good that someone gets to listen to you right now and get your advice and stuff but even being able to talk to other people and i think the keyword is like you were saying just use their experience if someone else had been through something like that and they helped you i mean that made it much easier for you to kind of have the confidence that maybe you could get out and what to do cuz if you didn't have the mentors like you were saying it'd probably taken a lot longer or been a lot more difficult versus even if you have one person two person three people that you could talk to just about this maybe one of them's gone through it and that's going to help you significantly come through
0: oh absolutely and you know the thing that i've learned and it's most entrepreneurs are type A. They tend to be control freaks. They really don't like being told what to do. I know I don't. Yeah. So the worst thing in the world is kind of advice dispensers. Here's what you should do. Like <laughs> I just shut down when I hear that. Right. So on the contrary, when I'm in a fluid conversation with somebody that I respect and know has been in a similar situation or traveled a similar path, it's not so much war stories. But it's like, look, when I was in a situation like you're in right now, this is what I did. There's a big difference between positioning it like that and here's what you should do dude so that's a big thing. Early entrepreneurs or people considering a startup or in that early infancy stage, or hell, even if you haven't done it yet, but you're considering doing it. I think one of the most important things is to just go into it making a hard commitment that you are going to just devote a significant amount of your time to learning and growing and starting to build a tribe, starting to build a network. To the extent that it's financially possible, hiring a coach early on, an accountability partner would be phenomenal. I mean, I have had multiple coaches, paid coaches and consultants over the... The years. And I have multiple today that serve different needs. And that's a really important function.
1: Because I'm exactly like you, what you're saying there is like, someone tells me I have to do something or do something like that. I'm like, you know, screw you off. Yeah, I don't need to listen to you. But if someone's phrasing it, like, okay, this is what I did in that experience. And that's what I've done on some of these calls with my listeners is like, hey, you know, here's some suggestions, but I'm not gonna tell you, it's your business. So you decide if you wanna take it, you can or if not, but hopefully it helps you. And then if you were able to act on it and it can help you, then that's great. But when someone comes to you and positions it, like you have to do this, I kind of shut down too. But having a mastermind group or having other people to relate to or even lean on, because when you're the head of the business, you don't get to bitch to people who are your employees about like what's going on. You need to be able to vent it somewhere else. And hopefully someone else in your group can tell you, hey, I felt that same way. So you don't feel alone doing
0: that. That's such a good point. And you touched on something that's really critical that I made definitely some early mistakes on when you talked about bitching. You can't do that to employees. I mean, there's a very big difference between the entrepreneur and business owner and somebody, even a trusted employee. But there's a big difference between an employee and an owner. You chose that path and you get the riches with the risks. So you don't really have a right actually to bitch and complain because they're actually looking to you for stability and they're looking to you for hope. So anyhow, you need somebody that you can offline when you're really scared or you're really lost or you're really not sure, or you just quite frankly are having a crisis of meaning and need somebody to remind you. That's where this tribe can really pay massive, massive dividends.
1: It's great that you are able to at least get into something like that with the coaching or consulting or the groups, and that kind of helped you got out of it. So why don't we talk about you coming out of it and how you grew today and survived that down point in 2010? Sure. As with the normal process of
0: aging, you get wiser as you get older. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. There's some examples out there, and I won't go there, but people that unfortunately have not grown much at all. But there's a big difference between wisdom. If you can't tap into that, if you can't tap into your life's your body of work the planet so far and learn from your mistakes, then it's like, what's the point? So I think today at 51, and I'm 24 years in, I've been able to remove my ego from so much of how I navigate the world as a leader. And in the beginning, whether it was just ignorance, I'm sure the fact that I was much younger and I didn't have as much life experience, but I made it much more about me. Hopefully today, and I am by far perfect at this, and I'm sure I get it wrong a lot still, but I'm more self-aware now. And I'm more aware when I'm trying to make a situation about me. So I think looking at my leadership style today and how I'm running the business, for me, it's all about the team and it's all about people. And if you get that right, one of of my favorite books is Jim Collins, Good to Great. And he talks an awful lot about getting the right people on the bus and then getting the right people in the right seats on the bus and then creating the right vision. And it's so true and important because if you don't have a team that is aligned and shares the same core values and same vision as you, it's just going to be so much harder, if not impossible, to realize big accomplishments and really get stuff done. Today, culture in my business is my number one priority. And culture, by the way, so many people get it wrong. So many people, think that culture is perks. It's easy to point to the tech companies and go, well, look at Google. They got ping pong pits and slides and free lunches and all that stuff. They're perks. And a lot of people think that's the culture. That's not. Culture is how are people acting when nobody's looking? And culture is that energy that you feel or you don't feel when you walk into a building or walk into an office. And that's important. So today we put an awful lot of effort, an awful lot of resources actually behind maintaining a consistently healthy and productive culture with a team that's aligned around To things that are important to us, like our core values, that's become kind of like this thing today. And a lot of times people confuse a vision with a plaque on a wall that companies will put next to the front door and they put it up and nobody ever looks at it again. And if you ask any random employee, hey, what's in your vision? They can't articulate it because they don't know. So that's important. We spend an awful lot of time and energy just making sure that people know what's important and know what's not important. Do you have any
1: top few tips or something that's worked for you in creating culture or something that maybe we don't have a high-end budget to do it or just any tactical stuff that maybe we can take before we get off?
0: Yeah. So you don't have to spend a lot of money. And in many cases, you don't have to spend any money to get some of the fundamentals right. So I would say that one of the most important things is adopt a strategic system. And there's a billion of them out there. One of the ones that I adopted very, very early in my journey is an individual. His name is Vern Harnish and Vern was kind of the founder of the entrepreneurs organization used to be called EO YEO Young Entrepreneurs Organization and he's since built that into this global organization of coaches and he's written books and he has a book out there called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits and he basically studied Rockefeller and he studied all the practices behind how he was able to build his empire and he distilled it down into actionable steps in terms of strategic planning and how to run meetings and how to hire people and all that so I adopted an awful lot of that so I would say grab a book for 10 bucks or 15 bucks that doesn't cost a lot of money at all and start there and then just sit yourself somewhere quiet somewhere peaceful and with a pad of paper and just kind of dream and try to articulate try to get clear in your head what it is you're trying to accomplish. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it almost smell like? And create that vivid vision. One of the coaches that I had, his name is Cameron Harold, and Cameron's a super impressive CEO coach, and he's also written a bunch of books, and one of the books he wrote is called Vivid Vision. And a vivid vision is really like this document that starts with the founder and starts with the CEO, but the real purpose for it is to then distill it down to all your employees. So we have a vivid vision that we've actually produced into a booklet. We actually have a massive wall in our office it becomes part of our hiring process. We give it to all of our new employees. We incorporate it into every meeting that we have. And every town hall meeting, we actually start with, where are we trying to go? What did we declare is our priority? What's the most important things? Again, these things don't cost a lot of money. They just take commitment and you have to follow through with it.
1: Thank you for coming on and sharing your story, Rick. Looking back, again, yeah, you shared a lot of information that I think we could all implement in our companies, but is there like one last thing you want to leave with the listeners to make sure that they don't forget this interview?
0: I think as I'm getting older, I start to think of what's the next 10 or 20 years look like for me. And I'm not one of those entrepreneurs that is building my business to just maximize value and sell it for a big payday. So I start to think of things like legacy and balance and how I can help the people on my team grow and evolve and help them realize their dreams. I think gratitude is important. I think if you're lucky enough to be able to blaze this entrepreneurial trail, recognize that and try to bring other people along with you in that journey. So encouraging personal and professional development within your team is really, really important because if they grow and evolve, they're only going to help you grow and evolve. Yeah. I think that's important. I mean, actually I have gratitude written in a lot of places in my
1: house. I think that's what I've learned to talk to more entrepreneurs, just appreciate where you are. But then also like you're saying, you're not building your company to have the huge payday anymore. Maybe that was in the beginning and maybe you transition to wanting to leave a legacy, but Even if you're in your 20s or 30s, you can start thinking about that now and hopefully build your business to help people grow as well. Absolutely. You
0: know, I forgot one thing I want to share with you real quick because I think it's important. So one of the most powerful things that I started doing three or four years ago is keeping a gratitude journal back to this idea of gratitude. And there's a million of them floating around, but I use one called a five-minute gratitude journal. And it literally takes five minutes a day. Like everybody's got five minutes a day. And it basically involves a couple minutes in the morning, right when you wake up, and a couple minutes at the end of the day before you go to bed. And it's real simple. You're just trying to list the three things that you're grateful for. And it's amazing how that almost fires synapses in your brain that you can use as rocket fuel. It keeps you grounded, and it really keeps things in perspective. So go out and get a gratitude journal. Start keeping it every day, and I think you'll see some great things come as a all of it
1: yeah because even if you like start off every morning with that let's say you have a quote unquote shitty morning at work well you can be thankful that you learned how to deal with this so hopefully it doesn't happen in the future so I could definitely see I mean that's what I try to think as much as I can obviously I don't always think that way because I'll get right. pissed off about some things but <laughs> you know just in general hopefully over time that grows and people become more grateful for what they're doing so thanks again for coming on Rick and I'm sure a lot of people listening right now want to show some gratitude towards you for doing the interview so if that's the case What's the best way for them to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview?
0: Yeah, no problem. So you can find me on LinkedIn under Rick Skidmore. My email address is rskidmore at timberlane.com. So first initial R and then Skidmore, S-K-I-D-M-O-R-E at timberlane.com. Would love to hear from your listeners. And I'm a big proponent of giving back. So I kind of welcome any questions or certainly feedback as well. Well, thanks again for sharing your story, Rick. Thank you, Austin. And best of luck to you as well.
1: Hey there, Millionaire Interview listener. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, we would really appreciate a five-star review. It helps other listeners find the show so they can enjoy it, just like you. And if you're looking for more episodes that are in the product niche, then try episode 11 with Bottle Breacher founder Eli Crane, or episode 13 with Sammy of BlackSox.com, or try episode 18 with Yak Gear founder Bill Bragman. Are you tired of building your business alone? If so, I'm putting together mastermind groups with our listeners so we can help each other grow our businesses. How do you join? Well, first off, you do that by joining our Patreon membership, which you can do by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. So what are you going to learn in these mastermind groups? Well, you're going to come to the table with issues you're having in your business and you're going to get real feedback from other business owners about what you can do to fix those problems. And I've only got a few more spots open for these mastermind groups. So if you're tired of growing your business alone and you want feedback on how to improve your business, well, this is the group for you. So to become part of this group, first you have to be a Patreon member. And you do that by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And again, spots are going to be limited. So don't miss out on this opportunity. Good stuff, Austin. Really, really appreciate the chat. And that's a piece of advice. Made this whole call worthwhile for me.